Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Today, I'll be reading Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one, which shall not be destroyed. I read Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Good morning, church family. It is so, so, so very good to be able to be in the presence of the family assembled here to worship God. It is uh, literally my favorite time of the week, and I hope that it is for yours, or for you as well. And to be able to stand here and preach the word continually week after week is one of my greatest blessings in life for sure. And uh, well, my favorite person of all to talk about is him, is Jesus. And uh, Jesus is the subject of our year every year, but even especially so this year, the year of our Lord 2023, it's all about Him. And we are going to continue to learn, Lord willing, week after week, what it means to live for Him. And our first series of this year is entitled Son of Man. And we started last week uh, by just considering the meaning of this term, Son of Man, that we find rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament we find that uh, of all of the titles that Jesus is worthy of, and there are quite a number of those, that while he was fulfilling his earthly ministry, the one that he preferred the most and used the most was in fact Son of Man, which highlights his role as the man, as the human being, uh, the human being that is called to fulfill God's desires for and obligations for the human race. And having done that, he is our ticket to also fulfilling God's desires for ourselves as his servants in this life, acceptably through his grace. Um, one of the things that encourages me so much uh, about this life and also about the life to come uh, is just how rich and how enduring the beauty of God's creation can be. You know, I've been uh, around not quite as long as uh, Phil went out. I, I wish he was here because I was going to let the cat out of the bag and just, you know, uh, congratulate him on reaching that uh, great age of four score, 80 years old. Uh, you know, you can tell him I wished him the best for that. But I, I've been on this earth for uh, 47 years and going, and beautiful blue skies have never worn out their welcome. They're just as beautiful as they have always been. 
and the way that God has, has created even this fallen world. He created it unfallen, but, but the beauty of his, of his perfect creation endures even through the fallenness of it, the brokenness of it. He's made it so that it's the same. I mean, you've seen a glorious blue sky thousands of times, and it's the same, but it's at the same time, it's always different, and it's always fresh, and it's always new. And you step out onto uh, outside the front door, and you just look up, and you see it's one of those days. It's something. It really is something. I know you know that's true. And uh, you look up, and you just think of what a beautiful uh, work of art that God has done. One of the things that I don't do as often as I used to, but as a kid, especially at my granny's house, she had a big hill in her backyard that was bare of trees on top, and we'd sometimes go up and lay down and look at the clouds on a cloudy day and, and uh, try to, you know, uh, see the cloud shapes and make pictures out of them. And I just found this picture, but uh, I wonder what you see. Uh, I went ahead and just sketched in, you know, what I like there. So there's like Conan the Barbarian, you know, fighting a giant lion. That's, that's what I see there. Do you all see that? But, I mean, every person that lays down and looks up at the puffy clouds, I mean, you can make pictures out of them, and it's wonderful entertainment, and it doesn't cost a dime. And God has filled our world with this stuff. I encourage all of us to get outside in God's nature regularly and just, I mean, just commune with His Spirit there and just, uh, just appreciate the glorious work that he has done. And of course, the night sky. I, I'm thankful this year I finally got a new glasses prescription. It had been a decade since I'd had my last one and I couldn't see anything. I was just making my way around. But I've always loved the night sky. Uh, you know, it was difficult enjoying it when I looked up and saw four moons vying, you know, for that same space because of how bad my astigmatism had gotten. Now, thankfully, I look up and I see one moon again, and that's nice. But I used to have a telescope when I was a kid that had been my uncle's, and it was given to me, and it, it wasn't nothing particularly special about it. It wasn't a great one, but it was better than the telescope I didn't have. And uh, my brothers and I, and sometimes our friends, would uh, go out at night and set that thing up and, and look at the stars and it wasn't very powerful, so all it could do was just show you that that star was, in fact, a, a circle, a sphere. So you got a bigger, brighter circle than you got. But that was enough. It was delightful. But the moon, I mean, what you could see on the moon, seeing the individual craters and cracks on the moon, just fascinating stuff. And whenever I get out of our light-polluted area, out into the country somewhere, where you can actually look up and see the, see the sky that Abraham saw, when God told him if he could number the stars that he'd be able to number his descendants, man, just when we see the glory of God's beautiful creation, it, man, it can take your breath away, and you ought to really stop sometimes and just soak it all in. And so all of that, of course, is uh, drawing our, our attention to Psalm chapter 8. And I just want us to think together this morning about verses 1 through 6 there, where David writes... O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And after a few more words, David gets to this point. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of of the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. 
David spent a lot of time outside, especially in the uh, uh, first half of his life, we might say. Uh, in his youth, shepherding his father's sheep, he spent a lot of nights under the stars and a lot of days under the, under the clouds. Uh, when he was fleeing for his life from King Saul, uh, he spent a lot of restless nights out under the stars and a lot of days underneath the sun. And he had a lot of time to think about it, and by the Holy Spirit, he penned these words which, had, uh, which became a prophecy. The Holy Spirit included prophecy in it, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. But, you know, David does say some things in this passage about mankind, about man, the son of man, uses both of those phrases in Psalm 8. He says that God has set mankind over the work of his hands. All things have been placed under the feet of humanity according to David's words in Psalm 8. And so I think in order to grasp the significance of this prophetic passage, maybe we should consider just how much it is that God has set us over. So how big is the earth? Well, the radius of earth at the equator is 3,963 miles according to NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. The equatorial circumference of Earth is about 24,901 miles. Earth's mass is 6.6 sextillion tons. 6.6 sextillion tons. So you got million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion. So that's where you are, just to kind of put that in perspective. This is one big heavy rock that we are flying through space on. Uh, and... Uh, its volume is about 260 billion cubic miles, or 1 trillion cubic kilometers, if you go with that standard of measure. The total surface uh, area of Earth is about 197 million square miles, and planet Earth is comprised of approximately 36 billion acres. 36 billion acres. Now, the population on Earth is the largest that it has ever been at well over 7 billion people. Uh, but you can see that God has uh, supplied the earth with well enough land to provide for a population even larger than ours is today. The inequity we see in the world with regard to the distribution of its resources is not because of any failure on God's part to provide. That failure comes on our part, our failures to set up a system that actually works for everybody. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think we will ever fully solve that. But the point of this is that God has set us over a vast and a wonderful and a resource-rich and a beautiful creation. And, and do not miss the fact that God has set humankind over this creation. We are his uh, shepherds, so to speak, of the world, his uh, co-regents over all the work of his hands. But he doesn't just say the earth. David says in Psalm 8, he's looking up at the heavens. He says all the work of your hands. So we, we need not just to think about how big the earth is. We, we need to try to wrap our minds on how big the universe is, around how big the universe is. Well, this comes from a NASA website. Our galaxy is a gravitationally bound collection of stars. This is just our galaxy, by the way, okay? So keep that in perspective. Our galaxy is a gravitationally bound collection of stars swirling in a spiral through space. Based on the deepest images, images obtained so far, it's one of about two trillion galaxies in the observable universe. That's, that's something. 
Groups of these galaxies are bound into clusters of galaxies and these into superclusters. The superclusters are arranged in immense sheets stretching across the universe, interspersed with dark voids and lending the whole kind of a spiderweb structure. Our galaxy, our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, probably contains 100 to 400 billion stars and is about 100,000 light years across. And that sounds huge, and that is huge, at least until we start comparing the Milky Way to other galaxies. Our neighboring Andromeda galaxy, for example, is some 220,000 light years wide. Another galaxy, everyone's favorite, IC 1101, spans as much as 4 million light years. Uh, four million light years. So when we think about the fact that our own galaxy, the Milky Way, not even one of the largest, is 100,000 light years across, you know, we need to kind of again, again wrap our minds around, well, what's a light year? Uh, just how big is this galaxy, much less the universe? Well, a light year is one of the most commonly used celestial yardsticks. I like that phrase. I had to keep that. The distance light travels in one year, in other words, a yardstick to measure the heavens, okay? That's what that means. The distance light travels in one year is a light year. Light zips along through interstellar space at 186,000 miles per second. That's how fast light travels. And that's more than 66 trips across the entire United States in one second. Multiply that by all the seconds in one year, and you get, this is a light year, 5.8 trillion miles. 5.8 trillion miles. Now multiply 5.8 trillion by 100,000, and that's how many miles you have to travel to get across the Milky Way galaxy. Just one galaxy. And with our meager ability to look into space, we all know that there are trillions of galaxies. So just stop for a moment and let that sink in. Just let it sink in. Just for reference, Earth is about eight light minutes from the sun. Step outside, the light that you're getting was shed by the sun eight minutes ago. That to me is mind-blowing as well. And so, brothers and sisters, this is a vast, vast universe, the work of God's hands. And I don't know what he expects us to do with it all, but I know that he has set us over it all. It's under our feet. Our own feet have walked on the moon. And if the Lord delays his return, maybe Mars will be next. And I don't know what we may be able to do before Christ comes again. I'm not sure. But I know that God has set humanity over all of the work of his hands, and it is a fast, vast, beyond imagination creation. But closer to home, it's so, so beautiful. It is so wonderful. It's not just the size of it, but it's the quality of it. It's not just quantity, it is also quality. The changing of the seasons is such a glorious thing. I, I, I love living in a place where the seasons change. I don't always like every aspect of every season all the time, and none of us do. But it, it's wonderful to see, you know, in winter now where everything appears to die back and you have the skeletal trees and the gray of things. And there's a certain beauty in that. And, and when spring comes along and, and the flowers begin to bloom and the trees begin to bud and the, the smell of the pollen on the air for about half a second is delightful. And then the second half of that second kicks in, and it's allergies all the way until sun. But I still love the changing of the season. Summer is beautiful, it's glory, everything's so rich and verdant. And then fall comes, and man, the, just the changing of the colors 
is a glorious thing in winter again. Snow is dangerous for all of us, and as grown-ups, we may not appreciate as much as we did as kids, but man, when you look out the front door and you see the whole world blanketed in white, you just need to give God glory because it is beautiful. It is beautiful beyond description. And I've seen so many snows in my life, but they never wear out their welcome. And of course, many of you have seen some of the great wonders of nature, uh, and God has certainly filled creation with wonderful beauty, having the ability last year to stand on top of a 14 or one of the great big mountains in the Rockies and look out from that. It's just something else, something else. I've never seen the, the Grand Canyon with my own eyes. Some of you have. I hope to someday, but the pictures of it are glorious enough. And not only uh, the beauty of God's creation, but what he has enabled us to do. I mean, some of the works that mankind has put together. I mean, you think about the seven wonders of the ancient world. I wish that I could have seen all of those when they, when they stood. But, but even today, man, some of the bridges and the buildings and the monuments that we're able to build, I mean, that is a reflection of God's creative nature, and it's, it's truly, truly beautiful. But more beautiful than any of that is us. We're the most beautiful thing that God ever made. People are beautiful. Even messed up people are beautiful. Broken people are beautiful. Every skin color is beautiful. Both sexes are beautiful. Old and young are beautiful. And the most beautiful thing about us is what's on the inside. The nature that God has given us, the capacity for good, the capacity for love. The drive that we have for community, for relationship, all of this, though imperfect and though tainted by our sins, is a reflection of the glory of God, and it is part of the creation that he has not only made us a part of, but over which he has set us as his co-rulers, as the Lord's over his inheritance. And so we come back then to Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. And with all of those things in mind, I, I want to read the passage again. And I hope that you'll read it along with me and then think about this as the Spirit would have us to really intent, internalize all of this. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. God is greater, vaster, more beautiful than all of the trillions of galaxies combined. They are simply his handiwork. He is superior to them all. But when we look, when I look, David says, at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And, and David is speaking by the Holy Spirit. He did not have the scientific information that we have. He had no clue how vast and glorious creation actually is. But just the visible reception of it from this earth was enough for him to praise God in this way. He was in awe of what God had done. And he asks this question, what is man? What is mankind? What is humanity that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, that is the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now that prophecy, that psalm, is very, very rich. I have no idea what happened there. Wakai, uh, 
I don't know what language that is, but I do know what David's question is. David's question that he is asking in Psalm 8 is, considering the wonder and the breadth and the beauty of creation, what does that say about us as human beings? How great are we if God would make all of this for us? That's David's question. Last week we talked about appraisal, the discipline, the profession, the skill of estimating the value of something, and we discussed the question of the value of a human being. What is the worth of a human being? And, and I hope that you remember uh, there is one solid objective answer to that question. Uh, the appraiser knows that, that an item, a piece of property, a house, whatever it is, a car, is worth what people will pay for it. And the appraiser's task is to look at the evidence and figure out what he or she thinks people will pay for this thing. And that becomes the, the set value of its appraisal. And so, well, the value of a human being is what someone will pay uh, for a human being. And the answer to that question is Jesus. It's the life of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. It is the life and the blood of the Son of God. That is the price that God has set on a single human being. That's the worth of a human being. And if God has set his glory above the heavens, and Jesus is God being a man, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, then let me summarize it this way and say that one single human being is worth more than the universe. The universe is for human beings, made by God for us. We are superior to it, more important than it and inestimably more valuable than 400 trillion galaxies. Whoever knows how many there actually are. But we ask a question. When we consider Psalm 8, go back to Genesis 1, from which Psalm 8 has, is, is rooted, from which it flows. We ask the question, are we? Are we in fact presently reigning? over all the work of God's hands? And I'm not the first person to ask that question, of course, but uh, the Hebrew writer has a little something to say about that question in Hebrews uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, first of all, I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That's on page 1062 in your pew Bible. But listen to the way that the Hebrew writer starts his, his letter, his book. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, who in various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. We see in this passage that the full deity of Christ is being affirmed. We'll talk more about that in February, Lord willing. But everything that was made God, was made according to the will of God the Father through Jesus his Son. The Word is the one who spoke the universe into existence. It was the second person of the Godhead, the Word of God, Jesus, who said, let there be light as the Holy Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters and made it so. This is who Jesus is. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and notice, upholding 
all things by the word of his power when he had set when he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high now this passage teaches us in no uncertain terms that the resurrected and the, the exalted Lord Jesus is, in fact, sitting in the throne room of the universe in God's third heaven at the right hand of the throne of the Father himself. Jesus sits, and he has been exalted over all things. And, in fact, he is ruling the entire universe. And the most distant galaxy, if there is, if the universe is an infinite, if there is a, a galaxy that is the most distant from us, the most unimaginable from us, that we have never laid eyes on with any of our technology, Jesus' will, Jesus' will, a man's will, the Son of Man's will, seated at the right hand of the Father, is holding that galaxy together by the word of His power. Brothers and sisters, that gives us a glimpse into what God intended for us in the beginning that was tainted because of our sin. Now let that sink in for a moment. Brothers and sisters, I know for certain that it's true about you just as it is true about me. I get enough of these glimpses from Scripture to know that God's plans for me in eternity that God's plans for you in eternity are far, far greater than we can even imagine. What God is going to have us doing in glory when we're resurrected from the dead is stuff that we just can't even dream of in these humble lives we live in this world that has fallen because of sin. Jesus is the guarantee of that. I want us now to look at the second chapter of Hebrews because this really puts things in perspective and it helps us to realize where we are and what's going on and what we're supposed to be doing with all of this truth, with all of these, uh, these truths that the Bible shares with us. And so Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been Now, I don't know how much time I'm going to get to, to, um, to talk about that phrase, to come. But it's used about five times in the book of Hebrews. It's very important, and, and it, well, we'll just see what I get to there, okay? The world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. Here, here the Hebrew writer begins to quote from Psalm 8, doesn't he? It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him, now notice the Hebrew writer by the Holy Spirit adds some interpretation to Psalm 8 and some application to Psalm 8. He clues us in on the fact that Psalm 8 is not primarily about all of us. It's not. Now, now David wrote it about humanity. He's thinking of himself as he writes Psalm 8. But he doesn't necessarily understand a thousand years B.C. approximately what God is trying to say prophetically through him, what the Spirit is revealing through him. We find from the Hebrew writer that Psalm 8 is about Jesus. Psalm 8 is about the Son of Man specifically and only humanity secondarily through Jesus, through him. And so uh, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. I, he was God in the form of God before his incarnation. Becoming a man, he is lowered below the level of the angels for a little while before he is resurrected and raised then into glory. Uh, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in its subjection under his feet. Is that true about Jesus? It is 100% true about Jesus. 
Don't you remember when he gives the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse uh, 19, all authority in heaven and on earth. And that phrase, in heaven and on earth, means everywhere, visible and invisible. The whole visible universe, the whole invisible spiritual realm, Jesus has been given all authority everywhere, in every place, in every way. Only the Father is accepted. Only the Father is accepted. Now the passage continues. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Do you realize who Jesus is? Do you fully grasp who our king is? Do you fully grasp the power that has been given to him by God the Father? The authority that he possesses in your life? Do you realize that, that it's very important that we understand this because we're taught in Scripture that we utter our prayer through the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, we say our amen. And in so doing, we are calling upon the highest of all authorities. And as baptized believers in Jesus' name or, or in the children of baptized believers, faithful in the church, when we pray in Jesus' name, it's legitimate. We actually have the right to call upon that level of authority the level of authority that is governing trillions of galaxies is the level of authority that we are calling on when we say, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, don't you feel a little silly for your unbelief? I say that convicting myself. It's our greatest and central struggle as human beings. We're called to walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. But our daily struggle is that we continue to try to walk by sight. And not by faith. It's something for us to consider. But notice what I've, I've made the words real big so that we can see it real clear there. At present, this is the Hebrew writer, not me. This is inspired scripture. He gives us a little asterisk to this. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now, what does that mean? Well, is there still crime in Jesus' world? Does he want it to be that way? There he is, and no, he doesn't. So, uh, Brother Ernest mentioned the world being in rebellion against Jesus. And it is, obviously. The world's in rebellion against Jesus. All the immorality in our country and throughout the world is rebellion against Jesus. So, we do not yet at present see everything in subjection to him. It doesn't mean that it's not in subjection to him. We don't see the finished result of it yet, the Hebrew writer is telling us. But what about the natural disasters that, that, that rage through various portions of the world every single year? Is that the way things are supposed to be? Is the world supposed to vomit us off of the, its surface just to borrow some Old Testament judgment language? Is that the way things are supposed to go in a world that the king of righteousness, the king of peace is reigning over? No, of course not. It's still a signpost that sin is in the world, that the reign of Jesus has not yet completed its ultimate goal. But we see him. Now, literally, visibly, no, that's not what this passage is talking about. In our hearts, in our minds, through faith, we see Jesus. 
and we understand who he is, and we know that God has put everything under his feet, our big brother, the son of man, the human being, the one who has filled up the measure of God's intention for humanity, we see him and we trust and we know that all of this is going to be fixed, that all of these problems are going to be solved. And the passage continues now going back to quoting from Psalm 8, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He says, that's who Psalm 8 is about. It's about Jesus. And now he has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In other words, Jesus is the solution to the problems of our failed reign as God's co-regents over the work of his hands. Jesus is filling up the measure of our failure so that God can look upon the human race as a success. And so those who find themselves living in covenant relationship with Jesus and following him and trusting him and striving to obey him can be summed up in Jesus, covered up by the perfection of Jesus so that on judgment day God can say, yes, you're fit to reign with him. You now will be exalted to be the king, the queen, the priest, the priestess that God always intended you to be from the very beginning. That's what God is doing through Jesus. The world doesn't even have the faintest clue. Sometimes in the church, we can't fully wrap our minds around it because it is just such a big thing. He's made, God made the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. That's why he's not ashamed to call us brothers because, yes, he is God, but he's a man too. So our answer to the question is, Jesus has fulfilled and is fulfilling all God's expectations for humanity. Those that we as sinners have failed to meet. We have been relegated to a fallen state, to mortality, to weakness that was not God's original intention. Jesus came and he bore our weaknesses, just as Psalm 53 says. He took on the full nature of mankind so that he could endure, could endure everything that we face in this life, up to it including death, and defeat it and overcome it and fulfill God's desires for humanity through it all so that in the end a pathway could be opened for us to return to power brothers and sisters. When you read 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll explore that more in our Sunday night series in just a little while, but you're going to find that this body is going to be sown in weakness. If the Lord delays this return, they'll bury you in the earth or they'll spread your ashes somehow or another. You will die and your body will decay, but Jesus will raise it up. It's sown in weakness, raised in power after the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know what the heavenly world will be like. I got a lot of imagination about it. I know what the Word of God specifically says. And I'm going to tell you this. The heavenly world will be perfect in every way. If this one is beautiful, that one is going to be jaw-droppingly beautiful. If this one is vast, do you think the perfect universe is going to be less vast? You're not thinking if you're thinking that. Man, God has got some really grand plans for you for you and for me. And boy, do I ever love him for it. The future is filled with hope and wonder. I mean, that's part of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God has got such good stuff in store for us beyond what we can even comprehend. 
And so, as I've said, I summarize, brothers and sisters, Psalm 8 isn't really about all of us after all, at least not primarily. It is about us, but not primarily because we blew our chance in Genesis 3. And before you get mad at Adam and Eve and say, oh man, they ruined it for us all, remember that you had your Garden of Eden moment sometime in your adolescence when you were grown up enough and taught well enough that you knew right from wrong and you knew the consequences of your action and like a fool you sinned anyway, right? So don't blame them. You bought in. You bought in to Adam and Eve. Thank God. (laughs) That's not where he left us. Thank God. We blew our chance. Psalm 8's about the Son of Man, the true Son of Man, the true human Jesus. But brothers and sisters, Luke 19, I'm sorry, Luke 19.10 is not this verse. That's in the book of Romans. But But Paul says to the Romans, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And I want you to just stop for a moment and let that phrase sink in because the implications of that passage are vast and probably, I think, not fully received or thought about as much as they should be. The gift and calling of God are irrevocable. If God has called us to be kings and priests, reigning over the work of his hands, that calling will not be revoked because of our failure. It will be fulfilled in the end. And that's really what Psalm 8 is all about. When we understand it through the finished work of Christ, we lost our shot at greatness. But Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's Luke 19 and verse 10. That's Luke 19 and verse 10. The Son of God became the Son of Man, so all the sons and daughters of fallen humanity could become the true sons and daughters of God. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7, words it in this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons through Jesus, God has sent the Spirit of His Son, Jesus, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. By the way, in case you wondered, that applies to daughters too. The word son here is the generic masculine. It's all of us. We're sons and daughters of God. And if we're in Christ, then we're just like Jesus. We're lined up to inherit the work of his hands. That we might reign in it and rule over it. In Jesus' name. That is our destiny. And this is all about redemption, brothers and sisters. When we think about the appraisal of the value of a human soul, listen, I want to affirm what we talked about last week. Reaffirm it today. You are worth the price that God paid for you. But just because he's paid the price doesn't mean that that price has been redeemed in you. You have to be redeemed. You have to accept that price. Embrace it. And so we need to understand that that this value that we have as human beings is not because of anything that we've done. It's not because of, of our beauty or our rareness or because of the condition that we're in. Because if God is appraising us based upon our beauty, we're beautiful people, but we, we don't compare it to the glorious resurrected beauty of Jesus as a human being should be. We, we don't compare it to that. Our quality, we're broken, every last one of us, just putting along and backfiring our ways through life. You know, I mean, that's, that's the fallen state of humankind. Our value is not based upon our present condition. Our value is based on God's exceptional generosity, His desire to repair us, to fix us, to redeem us. 
And so, brothers and sisters, the lesson is this, and I hope that you'll see that this is going to be what we're going to focus on all year long. Your value is found in Christ because he's the one that paid the price. And if you want to, to receive that value and to truly be worth the sacrifice of the Son of God, you've got to embrace him in faith and believe in what God has done for you. You've got to begin to, to live your life with that hopeful expectation of the greatness that is to come that is beyond your imagination, no, no matter how big and how gifted your imagination can, can be. Your value is found in Jesus. That's how you become valuable to God, in Jesus Christ and only in him. And if that is true, then your value is him. My value is Jesus. What is valuable about me? Nothing except the Jesus that is in me. And brothers and sisters, that is true for every one of us. What's valuable about you? Nothing except the Jesus that is in you. And that is infinitely valuable beyond all comparison. So I love you, brothers and sisters. You're something. You are something in Jesus Christ. And being able to, to live within the context of the church and see what God is doing in your lives and in mine every day as he continues to mold us and shape us more perfectly into the likeness of his glorious son, oh, we can't even imagine what the finished product is going to be. And so if your value is found in him, that means your value is him. Don't you think it means that you should value him? Brothers and sisters, I think it is safe to say that it means you should live your life for him. It's the whole purpose of life. This morning, I extend the gospel invitation. Do you, do you have an awareness in your life that you have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? If you do, and you have not responded to the gospel to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If you've not done that, convicted and having made the decision that I'm turning my life around, I'm giving my life to Jesus, I know it's not going to be perfect, but I am going to try to serve him this day forth and forevermore. And if you haven't obeyed the commandment to be baptized, to be united with his death, burial, and resurrection in the waters of baptism. It's ready today. You can become a child of God. You can begin the process of being transformed from this low state into glory. You can lay hold of the hope that is yours and the eternal destiny that is yours to reign with Christ in the heavenly world forever. If you don't do it, you may well lose it all. Today is a day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. And this morning, if you are a baptized believer, but you need the prayers of this church for whatever reason, front pews are open. Come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.